Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today's show is part two of our two-part conversation with my good friend, Kevin Shu. A quick recap on who Kevin is. He was born in China, studied international relations at Brown, then computer science and law at Stanford. He worked at the White House in the Obama administration. He was very successful as an entrepreneur. He now invests his time and money in the world of open source technology. He is also very much a cross-border expert with China, bilingually writing for a very successful blog called Interconnected.com blog and podcasting. Basically, I have life achievement envy. In this episode, we discuss how Chinese citizens view their own government, why Americans know less about how their government works compared to the Chinese, how Kevin developed an interest in geopolitics, the relationship between Obama and Xi Jinping, Kevin's perspective on Huawei and their future, and the potential implications of the U.S.-China decoupling and whether Chinese companies might delist from the U.S. stock exchanges over the next few years. Enjoy. A lot of your listeners who follow this stuff will remember when Obama first took office, when Secretary Clinton was their Secretary of State, uh, there was this huge pivot to China, or pivot to Asia, rather, moment, which was very much China-directed, kind of shifting our resources and attention away from the Middle East, which was very much a Bush administration focus, to Asia, to Southeast Asia, and so on and so forth. And I think there was a lot of hope during that time that this could be this new era where uh, America could really become an APAC country. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Okay, welcome back to part two with Kevin Shu. Kevin, thanks for sticking with us. I want you to help me break something down. While I was in China, I had a lot of people ask me naively, because China is communist, do the Chinese people there not only not really know a lot of what's happening in the upper levels of government and and how they are governed, but do they even care? Uh, is it something that's that's on their radar because they seemingly don't have the influence. Do they really know or care what's going on there? I mean, I think people pay a lot of attention to politics everywhere in China, uh, certainly their own politics, because it very much affects their life more directly, probably a lot more so than here, because here we have a much more distributed form of government in democracy, in a, Republican, a re republic system, right, of different tiers of government, of three branches, of state government, then local government. So whatever happens in the federal level, which you know, I was a little bit a part of, it actually doesn't trickle down <laughs> to your everyday life that quickly, right? Like mm -hmm. if you think about the actual execution part of the Affordable Care Act, for example, Obamacare, which I was you know, part of, uh, not yeah. like, a, like a big part, but I was there, I guess. 
<laughs> that gets into uh, breaking down the federal money. If there is any federal money to block grants to state government, and the state government selects the local community partners or local government where they further distribute a little bit more chunk of that money, and that eventually gets to save people's lives. Right. As an example. But in China, because the central government is much more, let's just say, involved, whatever they actually decide could impact your pocketbook like tomorrow. Like if they make a new regulation about, I don't know, whatever, like labor law, for example. Right. Like it impact your like labor status or employment. And, you know, like I, I interact a lot with the entrepreneurs uh, in China and you see them being way more politically astute domestically than the entrepreneurs that I would uh, meet in Silicon Valley, for example, because that literally impacts what lane, you know, you talk about side out, right? In China, it's like you pick your side out, you pick your lane for your entrepreneurial idea for your next startup. Does this match up with the central government's view of where the country should be in the next five years? If it does, great. I'm going to talk to VCs who also align their money and their capital in the same lane. So you have a much easier fundraising cycle. You have a much easier time of explaining your story and your idea. You're not going to go against this grain, right? That isn't going to give a shit about where you want to take the world. Like the, the country's going to go where the country's going to go. So you align yourself with that much more so in the way you ideate and then execute and then build your company uh, into the future, uh, than, you know, people in America and in Canada, for example. So that is the world in which to operate in. So it, it's not about it, like uh, being able to affect politics is the only reason why you should pay attention to it. Do you think that people in America have a, a better understanding of what's happening in the government and the impact on them? And B, do they have a better ability to influence what's going on in government and what's happening to them versus uh, their Chinese brethren who do do Chinese citizens have a better understanding of what's going on and do they have a better ability to influence what happens to them? Ooh, you just, it's full of easy questions today, Todd. I know, uh, I know. Sorry. <laughs> so in the American citizenship, citizenry context, I'd say people in America have a lot more power to influence outcomes than they believe they do. And they also have way less knowledge about how government works than they think they do. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes any That's, sense. Yes, it it's, does. Totally. It kind of, it kind of like beers, but like, I'll give you some examples, right? Local politics, your city council or your mayor um, in a average size city in America that probably takes about a few hundred to maybe a couple of thousand votes to swing an election one way or another. So if you actively participate in local politics, if you just vote in local politics, which everyone has the opportunity to do so, you can really select the, the, the gal or the guy to be on city council that could very much affect how your garbage gets collected or how, when your road is going to get paved, right? Underutilized completely. And we can bring in the police uh, conversation to that, too, when it comes to police brutality, when it comes to, uh, you know, how policing should be done in neighborhoods to maintain racial justice. I know this is like kind of way off course for your audience, maybe, but maybe they're interested in this, too, in the sense that if you don't vote for your district attorney, 
or your local judge, a lot of them are elected, they're not appointed, or your mayor, um, then you're kind of abdicating your responsibility of affecting this very important issue. And if you do, you can very much influence it, right? So that's example number one. And now coming back to how much people know about actually how this stuff really works is a more kind of almost a trope perspective in a sense that, of course, social media is fucking everything up, right? Of course, cable TV, the 24th news cycle is screwing everything up because politics and the intricacies of government and governing and just managing a large group of people has now been packaged into so-called debates and entertainment and sports, which if that is the baseline in which you approach something, then you think you know a lot, right? Like before we were recording, we talk about fantasy sports. We talk about how we're both sports fans. And, you know, like I'm a big fantasy sports player myself. Like you think you know a lot about these teams and these players because you're like part of it or something. Or like you maybe make a few bets and maybe you think you do, but really you have no clue how all this stuff really works in the locker room with the management of the team or why a certain team win or a certain team lose. Because so that's not your job, but you think you do, right? So that is kind of the current version of the American citizenry, in my opinion. They think they know a lot more than they really do, but they also do a lot, a lot less than they really can. Right. Okay. The other side of the ocean. So now China. <laughs> um, it's probably the reverse, as you might have expected. I think they know a lot more about how the Chinese government works, not just at the central level. I mean, to the extent that this information is even publicly available, right? Obviously, you read a bunch of tea leaves into um, whatever report comes out of CCTV. You read your bloggers, you read your gossip columns, and you just have to figure this stuff on your own. Provincial government is a very interesting level that people don't uh, outside of China don't pay attention to, but they have huge influence in terms of where project is landed, what companies get funded, all these sorts of things. Um, so they pay attention to outside of um uh, China as well. They pay a lot of attention to American politics, probably quite a bit to European politics or like some of the Southeast Asia country too. So they know a lot more than you, uh, that I think people give them credit for. But like we talked about, there's nothing they can really do about it. How did you get interested in, in geopolitics? How, how did you, I know you, you said that you went into, you know, being involved in politics almost out of just a fascination, but how did you actually get involved? Talk us a little bit more about why you got involved. Um, and why, why are you interested in geopolitics and even around China and the White House and the Obama administration in general? Yeah. So I started college, uh, going into it as actually a computer science and a political science major. I just thought that was like a weird combination to do. Uh, I actually <laughs> stopped doing computer science pretty early on because I was not that great at it. And the social life, so social life was terrible. You know, oh, yeah. like you're just like stuck in labs all day. You're not going to any parties or meeting any people. It's like, <laughs> screw that. Um, and just got into international relations, which is like a basically poli sci with a foreign language requirement. Right. Um, and because I am fluent in Chinese, you know, grew up speaking Chinese, that was like a very easy segue for me to uh, study. And then I got really interested in mostly like kind of like the national security uh, lens of East Asia politics, you know, wrote my thesis on it, uh, was basically like an IR major for the rest of my college career, thinking that I would be a diplomat, actually, like apply to the Foreign Service or, um, you know, work at Brookings or one of these like 
big shot think tank things mm-hmm. uh stumbled into the, the the campaign almost by happenstance just because that was the right timing for it mm-hmm. and through that i learned a lot more about how foreign policy actually gets made while i was inside the government i worked for a year in the commerce department before uh, the white house and commerce department actually has a really interesting portfolio of trade of uh sanctions of entity list which is now like hot news in uh, our current uh, affairs right now but when mm-hmm. i was there during like the 2010s or something like yeah. no one gave a shit about entity lists and stuff like that because sure. it just wasn't a big thing but that gave me some good education for that and obviously the white house later so it was always a threat that i carried with me and the w- interesting thing about being chinese american speaking the language as well is that that stuff never leaves you even if you wanted to leave uh, you know, like China stuff just follows me around, <laughs> like yeah. whatever Chinese officials visit or we have like a Oval Office sit down or, you know, we have these like bilateral trade talks. I'm like the guy who's like, all right, you go figure that out or you, you know, deal with those Chinese reporters that we don't know how to talk to them. <laughs> OK, well, and but that was a really interesting time, too, because not only were you at the early stages of the Obama administration, but this is when uh, Xi Jinping took took office. That's right. right. So can you tell us a little bit the temperature and how that relationship developed of anything that you potentially were witness to uh, as, you know, Obama and Xi Jinping were getting to know each other and the, these two kind of administrations started to connect and have a relationship? Right. What was that like? So I wasn't very much involved in the foreign policy making of the White House at all. So I actually have very little to say in terms of the intricacies behind that. My job there was primarily dealing with press and communications. So I deal with the White House reporters that cover the White House every day. I kind of orchestrate all their coverage, you know, whatever you see reporting from the White House, whether it's on CNN or like CCTV, I guess, you know, back in China. Uh, I'm, I and my colleagues are the people kind of orchestrating that behind the scene. Right. As far as the leadership is concerned, um, I left actually right around the time when Xi Jinping had that Sunnyvale uh, hangout with Obama. <laughs> uh, right. I, I probably would have <laughs> gone on that trip had I stayed in that job, but it was like, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Um, so I really don't have a good sense of um, from a personal, intimate perspective, the evolution until 2016. Uh, when I already left the White House, but I got to mm. go to China for the Hangzhou uh, G20 summit. I was one of mm-hmm. the advanced uh, staffers on that trip. And mm-hmm. that's just kind of how these international um, trips go, you know, behind the scenes for your listeners. Like you set a huge team of White House staffer or former staffer or people you just trust and know what they're doing to manage and advance, quote unquote, prepare all these massive trips, right? So that was the G20 summit. It was Obama's last one. It was the big uh, to-do for Xi Jinping because it's the one that China was hosting in Hangzhou, where he was formerly the governor of the province, Zhejiang, right? So there's all these like symbolism to that trip. And even at that time, you could see, I would say, tension forming. Uh, and there's some kind of like inside baseball that I will share if it's interesting. One thing that we did uh, during the G20 summit was that, you know, we live in our hotel and there are always these ballrooms in the hotel that you use for backup situations. Typically, all these world leaders would do a press conference, right? After they finish their meeting and talk about whatever. And usually you would do it at the uh, at the site of the expo, 
which they spent a large amount of money building this beautiful expo, as you would uh, in China, just for this single purpose. And, <laughs> and the press conference that Obama held was in our hotel, as opposed to at the expo center, because we weren't really happy with the way that the whole conference was run or how we were treated as guests in China. And there are all these sort of like very uh, kind of behind the surface or below the surface of frictions with press access, kind of going coming back to freedom of speech, right? Like press mm. access in China is a huge pain in the ass every time you go there. Why can't our reporters report on this? Why can't our reporters listen on that? You know, in the US, we kind of let them do a lot <laughs> not whatever yeah. they want but pretty close right and in china's like you know just highly controlled and i deal with the reporters all the time that was my job so we were trying to get american reporters to access all these meetings and just didn't do it and we're just like screw that we're just gonna have our press conference in our hotel as like a minor fu and i'm illustrating all this stuff to say it wasn't trending well already during that time Right. And I think a lot of you listeners who follow this stuff will remember when Obama first took office, when Secretary Clinton was their secretary of state, uh, there was this huge pivot to China or pivot to Asia rather moment, which was very much China directed, kind of shifting our resources and attention away from the Middle East, which was very much a Bush administration focus to Asia, to Southeast Asia, and so on and so forth. And I think there was a lot of hope during that time that this could be this new era where uh, America could really become an APAC country. Mm-hmm. And to really engage the entire region, obviously, with China being the most important one over there. And that just kind of slowly um, disintegrated. Not, I don't know for what exact reason, to be honest, because there are a lot of things that happen, right? When you're the president, you don't pick your problems. The problems pick you, right? We had Syria. We had Ukraine. Obviously, Russia became a huge factor as we got closer into the 2016 election at the time. Uh, so all that is to say, I saw a lot of fun stuff. Um, but whatever you want to read into it, you know, that's for you to decide. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a very interesting time looking at now looking at China today. I want to start, uh, talking a little bit more back to technology, some AI, even some, you know, implications of decoupling, even, you know, with Apple and their, in their factories and things. But let's start the conversation with a little bit around Huawei. What is your interpretation of, of what's happening here? Um, they are all over 5G, potentially a world leader in a lot of 5G technology, but RBS being hamstrung by, um, for, 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 um, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but I'm interested to do what, what, what are the reasons that you feel, um, you know, both that are publicly being told, but then maybe behind the scenes that maybe people don't quite understand about how this is going on. What is, what is it about Huawei? Why is maybe the U S kind of picking them and making an example of them? And, uh, what is the future for Huawei and their 5G and, and, and just their company? company in general. Yeah, Huawei is a very complex company. So yeah. I will put Huawei in this uh, unique category of companies that I will call national champions mm-hmm. in China. Yeah. So they're not just a successful company. They have important national strategic value. Um, and Huawei will be one of them. And there's a couple of semiconductor uh, manufacturers that would be in that category as well. And Huawei has a long history. I think a lot of people forget because, you know, the first time they hear about Huawei might be the 5G, might be the sanctions, blah, blah, blah. They started in the 80s, a few years after Cisco did. 
they were supposed to be basically the Cisco of China, right? Networking. And that was their first business uh, line. And they're still a, a pretty, I think, good solid chunk of the revenue is from like making network equipments and so on and so forth, which obviously helps now uh, for them to build these 5G networks for other telecom companies. But they're also a smartphone company, right? So they are sort of an Apple and a Samsung and a bunch of other stuff. And so they're much more of a conglomerate than anything that would even be analogous here in the U.S., even mm-hmm. considering how big, you know, the big tech companies are uh, mm-hmm. these days. I think Huawei's revenue um, is that a point where if they were to ever be traded publicly, say on the NASDAQ tomorrow, just as for the sake of example, they will get like a trillion dollar valuation. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, they have a semiconductor research line. They're, they have a Qualcomm type uh, business line as well. They make these chips. They make the network uh, stuff. They make their smartphone. So they're a big target because they're legitimately a big company that has their hands in all kinds of different things. And the other thing that doesn't help Huawei is this very kind of mercurial ownership structure. Right. Mm. It's sort of this like family business. It's run by Ren Zhengfei, uh, the CEO who has, you know, army connections. The CFO is now detained in Canada, but it's his daughter. Right. And then it's a private company. It's like employee owned, quote unquote, by a union. But the union structure reports to the relevant labor organizations within China. And you don't really know how much and who really owns the company. It's very shrouded in secrecy, which I think doesn't help Huawei's case at all. Every time they deny that we're not doing anything bad, nobody believes it. right? Um, But that, in a way... Uh, because of his ownership structure, because of his actual economic and kind of technological power, uh, makes it a very big target for sanctions, right? So it's very rare where you see American sanctions targets a company to that extent, just like yeah. battering the company yeah. multiple rounds. And now they're forced to possibly sell their smartphone line because it's just not going to be a very good uh, product because it couldn't access the top line chip that it used to be able to access to build their smartphone. Because they are a business at the end of the day, right? They're competing with iPhone. They're competing with Samsung. They're competing with Xiaomi uh, and all these sorts of things. So that is just a way of saying... Uh, both how important Huawei is as a national champion, but also uh, how it's a very, very big uh, and profitable company. Like they're a, a force of presence in the enterprise space in China, wherever you go, right? If you're like a small enterprise startup, you're competing with Huawei for contract, right? Huawei has its cloud. Huawei has like everything. Um, and now with this trend, Huawei is trying to survive basically for the next few years. And the thing with 5G is that if you don't use Huawei uh, from the American perspective, there aren't actually that many good alternatives. The only two other alternatives are basically the two big uh, European giants, uh, Ericsson and um, I think Nokia. Uh, don't quote me on that, but uh, it could be the other one. But they are the ones that have the technology to build a 5G network full stack, for example, right? Like Qualcomm might make 5G chips, but they don't have the capability to actually build the base stations and all these sorts of other things, Um, which kind of comes back to, you know, what America needs to do uh, besides battering down Huawei, which we are perfectly capable of doing. But where are we filling in the gap in the future, right? I think that's the more important question as we look into the future. Why the black box? Why the secrecy, you know, in your opinion? I know that it 
it actually potentially damages even Alibaba as an investment target for a lot of investors because it's really tough if you try to look under the hood to really see what's going on when they come out and say, you know, we've got these new technologies and it's worth 10 billion and oh, we've got a new technology and it's worth 30 billion. And you really ask why, how, let me see. And they will, oh, we can't show you that, but you just have to trust us. Uh, and it's going to impact Tencent too. Why, why are they so secretive? They must understand how much it hurts them in the global view of things as far as a trust factor. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see more transparency out of Huawei for its sake or yeah. more transparency for for the Babas and the Tencents and the JDs of the world. I think obviously they're a little bit better because they're publicly listed, right? But still very confusing for the most part. Um, I don't know why. Hmm. I also don't, but, but the, I think the other thing is that I don't think they've been hurt by it enough that it really matters for them to change. True. That's just the, at the end of the day, right? Like as much as we complain about it, I mean, I wrote a piece called why Huawei should IPO in America, you know, for its sake, right? Just be like, hey, what is there to hide? <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. such a huge company. Just like, let us know. Like, it's cool. You probably get more. You could probably like appreciate for all I know. Um, but they don't, I don't know why, but I also don't think they've been punished by it enough that it really uh, matters. And this kind of maybe comes back to, uh, you know, this current trend with the listing Chinese companies from the U.S. potentially, which I don't actually see happening that much. Um, but, you know, there's like a pending law in Congress right now called the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, which essentially just says uh, the current uh, New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ um, and the SEC accounting board that keeps company uh, accountable in terms of their accounting uh, transparency, we will now apply the same rules to Chinese companies, just as we do to all foreign companies who live in the US, which we actually don't for some reason. And the reason is because the economy is so huge, it's growing so quickly, these companies are so compelling, and Wall Street wants their business so bad, that we're just like, yeah, it's, it's fine. Are you worried at all about um, the U.S.'s ability to compete with China over the next 10 to 20 years when it comes to things like entrepreneurship, technology, AI, this kind of stuff? I am concerned, but not overly concerned. I think there's still a lot of energy in America. There's still a lot of um, just raw talent and also a ton of capital. Uh, in America, if you watch too much political TV, you wouldn't see any of that. Sure. But, um, and you know, like there's definitely a lot of things we need to fix. I think immigration, just having some stable immigration policy would be, uh, very important for the future competitiveness of America, whether it's vis a vis China or vis a vis, uh, any other country for that matter. Um, I want to double click on AI real quick, if I may, because I think Please. that's actually a really good example or a, a, a particular sector to watch in terms of how these two countries differ. Um, in China, uh, AI is much more used in real applications. There is a preference that whatever comes out of a paper or a company or a research lab, the time from that being researched to the time it lands in a consumer's hand or a car or some kind of actual application is much shorter than that of the U.S. because sure. of, I think, a, a top-level preference for it. I think a very much more loose regulatory 
framework. Uh, while the core research of AI, which of course is the basis of all this improvement, is still much, very much lacking uh, compared to the U.S. counterpart. And the U.S. has the reverse story. I think we still obviously have the best universities, the best talent, the best researchers, whether it's in uh, uh, on college campuses or in the Google labs and the Facebook labs of the world. So the core research and advancement is still very much uh, in the leadership driver's seat. But the application of those research to um, to the lives of Americans is much slower through because uh, you have to go through federal regulation, you have to go through state regulation, and there isn't a very good alignment among the regulators in America to really figure out what is the right balance there because I think of everything being so politicized these days. Like these should be very technocratic decisions, right? By uh, the FTC or the transportation department. You know, if we think about self-driving as an example or a use case of AI of whatever local state level transportation on the state level that needs to be aligned and figuring this out, there's much less alignment here in America when it comes to that versus their counterparts they're rule makers uh, in China. So that's kind of where I see this thing going because if like core research is great, but I would like to see AI being more applied to people's lives in the right way, right? And it gets very controversial. Um, and there's also the ethics and the privacy angle involved as well, which is a very different uh, regulatory regime in China versus the United States. But those are the two big differences that I think will really determine, uh, quote unquote, which countries is up, which countries down <laughs> uh, in the next five to 10 yeah. years in the, uh, in the lens of AI alone. COVID brought us some very fun dances with manufacturing and global manufacturing and how that was uh, impacted uh, via, you know, COVID and, and all the implications of that. So that, that, I think that brings about a, an interesting conversation that, that intersects with, with companies like Apple who do a lot of manufacturing in China. Does this Potential decoupling of manufacturing from China, not even maybe just from the U.S., but in in a lot of places. Do you see any major implications coming from that, or was that a bunch of hot air and a lot of stuff that was talked about before? But that really kind of hasn't come to fruition as much as people thought it was gonna. I think one thing on a very macro level that COVID exposed for countries is that there's a lot of value to becoming more self-reliant overall. Right. So we see that in the U.S.'s lack of a response to PPE equipment. Mm. Um, and obviously the tight link between uh, manufacturer capacities in China with, you know, Apple, with all these other American companies that is now becoming uh, less of a assumption that this is just the right way to do business. But you have to think a bit more about where else should you go to maintain your own uh self-reliancy in a sense. And China is thinking about in the same way, right? The bunch of stuff that China is relying on the US and other places to do. And they're thinking about from a technology angle when it comes to semiconductors and so on and so forth, how do we become self-reliant uh, because of sanctions? And that's obviously not directly related to COVID. And with regard to Apple uh, in China, they are already diversifying some of their very low-end manufacturing pieces to places like India, to places like Vietnam, 
Uh, I think Samsung and Xiaomi actually both have pretty sizable manufacturing base in India uh, to sell phones to their Indian customer. I think there's actually a, an Indian regulation that you you have to manufacture like a certain amount of this end product inside India to be able to be allowed to sell to Indian uh, consumers, right? Which you sure, see a lot like of that, that kind of policy uh, for yeah. developing countries. Um, and I think the nuance there is that Chinese manufacturing is really good because yeah. they've been doing this uh, at various levels of the value chain for a very long time. Like if you are a, a, a hardware prototyper, if like your next idea has a hardware component to it, you're going to Shenzhen, right? There's like no question. Sure. There's still so much competition on the ground that's very cutthroat. Like their manufacturers were very good, will make your shit for a hundred pieces, and they wouldn't take bulk orders. They're like, yeah, we'll do it. Like, it's fine. Like, we're losing money. So what? Right? Like, they're very, very mm-hmm. aggressive still. So you're going to be competing against that uh, by other countries. I, I know for a fact that India manufacturers do not have that way of doing business. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. So uh, so to think about it, it's like, will Apple's decoupling be a huge to-do? I think on the headline, it will be. But Apple is like arguably the most uh, sophisticated manufacturer in the whole uh, on the whole planet. So they will figure out what the best thing they need to do is for their bottom line. And right now they're not moving in droves outside of China to other places because there are no good actual manufacturing alternatives, right? There's some in the U S they're obviously building their Mac in the U S and all these sorts of things. Um, but uh, China has definitely a lead in that sense. So at the end of the day, a lot of this kind of knee-jerk reaction to COVID, to decoupling, to uh, uh, to interconnection versus self-reliance, um, people are still sorting it out because it's such a big jolt, this COVID thing. And uh, hopefully in the next year or two, we'll become we'll become more reasonable about it. Like there's certain parts that we do need to build ourselves, right? Medicine, you know, medical devices to be emergency reserve. Right. For your own citizen. That's just like your job as a as a freaking leader of the country. Um, But there are other parts in the business world where over reliant on yourself just doesn't make a lot of sense. Very interesting how it's all interconnected. Indeed. Indeed. And I'm (laughs) glad that's what my newsletter is called. Interconnected.blog. Exactly. Okay, so, you know, talking about all this, we're talking about decoupling and things. What about delisting? Real quick, just to close this out, delisting, do you think Chinese companies will actually delist from U.S. stock exchanges over the next few years? Um, I think that delisting... Uh, narrative is a bit overblown at this point. There are certainly a few companies that have delisted, but I actually think they were in the process of delisting anyways for other more business-driven reasons. Like they weren't getting the valuation they want in New York because they weren't I don't know, being treated fairly or people don't understand their story. They probably didn't do a good job of selling their story and they think they could relist back in China or Hong Kong or get bought by a private equity firm and give higher valuation, right? I think like 58.com, I think it's like a realtor, uh, Chinese e-commerce startup or something. They got delisted a few months ago, but that was more of their reason than uh, geopolitics or like political atmosphere. I think one trend that we may see more of, and we're seeing a little bit of this already is actually a second listing in Hong Kong by US mm. uh, by Chinese companies that are uh, listed in New York right now. We saw JD do that. We saw NetEase do that. Uh, I saw recently that Billy Billy, the the YouTube of China, but I guess a, a lot more actually. Uh, but Billy Billy, they're thinking about uh, 
a second listing next year in Hong Kong as well. And again, it's easy to chalk that up to, oh, they're trying to delist. And I think there's a little bit to that because why not have a redundancy capital market to your current capital market when this market may not be very friendly to you, right? That's number one. But also, there is just this huge flow of cheap capital flowing around in the entire world. And this is a great opportunity to raise money if you want to accelerate your business growth in the APAC region. And I think right now, the Billy Billy Hong Kong's uh, planned listing is in the range of like 800 million to 1.5 billion. Um, and even on the low end, let's just say it, they suck at this listing and they only raise 800 million, that will still be twice as much, almost twice as much as what they raised on the NASDAQ two years ago. Why don't we have a really big competing China version of a stock market? I think they're trying, right? I think the Shanghai star market is the is the domestic champion, the national champion of the Nasdaq for China. Yes. Um, and you know, with the Ant Group listing of both, which will be in both Hong Kong and in Shanghai, that will be a big indicator as to um, how well the Chinese domestic. Uh, stock market or the capital market can do right. Like for from Wall Street's perspective, that was a huge loss of business at the end of the day. That and isn't listing on a Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and I think China is trying to build up their own domestic um, capital market for both competitive reasons with the U.S., but also another more domestic angle that I'm not sure how many people in America really knows about is that there are very few good investment opportunities if you're a middle-class Chinese family right now. Most of your investable income goes to real estate, which is a huge Mm -hmm. bubble. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them get scammed into peer-to-peer lending stuff, which blew up a couple Mm of years ago. That was pretty ugly. Mm -hmm. Um, and all kinds of like weird, like fintech startup that might come up to prey on that lack of option. Right. And I think the government understands that, that without a really good, vibrant, uh, stock market domestically that actually lists quality companies that wouldn't be a scam, that wouldn't be weird, that wouldn't be all this and that, then people will feel more safe putting their money domestic too. And there's less capital flight and you don't have to do all these restrictions about you can't move a certain amount of a USD out of China to other places, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a larger uh, objective there. So I think we will either see if they can mature the star market into that alternative or not, but it's certainly underway. Yeah, I think it would be a huge boon to China. I've been to Macau. I know how much... Uh, the Chinese enjoy gambling, and uh, I think <laughs> and that's where the love... money goes too, right? Like, it's like, well, yeah. I can only buy two houses by law. I guess I'll that's just right. gamble away in Macau and see what happens. Yeah, people getting divorced literally just to buy more real estate. Exactly, it's it's hilarious. Kevin Shu, founder and author of Interconnected Blog or Interconnected Dot Blog, is where you can find it. Also, the co-host of Model Majority Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, buddy. Thanks for having me, Todd. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.